Hi, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Stephen Beasley. I'll be your host here with Samuel Kordick and Dr. Rachel Ely. Hi, I'm Rachel Ely. I am an EMS and Disaster Medicine Fellow from Brook Army Medical Center, visiting here at Cypress Creek EMS for the month of April. And I'm Samuel Kordick. I'm the Clinical Director. One of the things that we have been really excited to have here at Cypress Creek EMS for the last year has been fellows from Brook Army Center's EMS and Disaster Medicine Fellowship that have rotated through. They've done typically a month, uh, sometimes a little bit longer than that here. And they, they rotate here as well as uh, San Antonio and some other places um, as part of their training. These are all physicians who've been trained in emergency medicine, I believe, who are active duty military and they're training specifically for EMS uh, medical direction. And they work here on specific projects that are different for each fellow. Uh, but also help augment our response capability, do online medical control, respond to scenes, uh, do a lot of advanced cool stuff. And we get to learn from them while they're learning here. So it's kind of a win-win scenario. Um, before we get into kind of what the fellowship looks like, Dr. Ely, what, what was your background in EMS before this fellowship? So I started in EMS in 2007 when I got my EMT basic uh, certification. Before that, I had no experience with EMS. I didn't really understand how the whole system worked. I did an internship in a tiny three-bed ER uh, while I was in college and hung out with the EMS crews. They seemed to be having a lot more fun than I was having in the ER itself. Uh, and that's what prompted me to uh, get my initial EMT basic training. I loved it. I went on and got my paramedic certification. I've been nationally registered uh, as a paramedic since 2009, I believe. I worked uh, after college. I worked for about three years full-time and uh, applied to medical school kind of almost on a whim, I hate to say, but uh, Went to school in Des Moines, Iowa, and worked as a paramedic, even through medical school, to have a little extra money on the side. And uh, yeah, I, I can't get away from it. Um, I've really enjoyed it over the years. So you said almost on a whim going to med school, which is not what a lot of folks do. Was this something that had been kind of planned for a while, that this was an option out there, or was it spur of the moment you had the credits and the MCAT score decided just what the heck. So I had been going back and forth between staying in EMS, going to PA school, going to medical school, and I really hadn't made up my mind. Uh, so I threw my application in the ring for medical school. I had all of the prereqs that I needed, and uh, I applied to two schools, which is not what you're supposed to do, but somehow managed to get in. And uh, yeah, I did got very lucky, honestly. Could you kind of give a, our, our folks a little bit of a background on what is the, the medical education journey from getting into med school through to where you're at now? What does that kind of look like at, at a high level? So I would say getting into medical school is the first just monumental obstacle. There are uh, tens to hundreds of hours of prerequisites that are required. There's uh, very expensive application fees. There are tests that uh, there are really no college courses that prepare you for. Um, and once you master or at least uh, become 
proficient in some of those areas. You uh, apply, interview. The medical school process itself is is uh, likened to drinking from a fire hose. There's just no human possible way that you can take in all of that information and retain all of it, but you do the best you can. Uh, just kind of put your head down and uh, and spend all of your waking hours studying. Uh, it's not a pleasant process, but once you come out of those first two years, you get to actually go and do patient care and put into practice all of the things that you had been looking forward to and maybe you had forgotten about during those first two years um, that, that actually uh, made you want to do this in the first place. And then somewhere in your third and fourth year, you start preparing for the residency match, which is a, a, a painful process unto itself that involves, again, a lot of fees and travel and interviews and um, trying to figure out what it is you're looking for and, and deciding what field it is you want to go into and hoping that those people feel the same way about you as you do about them once you find that program that you're interested in. Uh, if you take the path that I took uh, and you join the military, that makes it even more complicated along the way. So uh, it's just one more uh, joyful experience that you might have, um, but but worth it if that's your, your cup of tea for sure. So residency is anywhere from three to five years for most programs, seven if you're a neurosurgeon, like a crazy person, um, and a different sort of pain than medical school, uh, one that feels more worthwhile, I would say, because you can you can see the good that you're doing as you're interacting with people and, and uh, providing care that's needed, but... Uh, once you have completed all of those monumental hurdles, you can call yourself doctor and feel pretty good about what you've accomplished. That's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. So by analogy, the the first couple of years are kind of like the classroom phase of paramedic school times like a million. I'd say that's accurate. And then the second years are, are more like, and the residency would be more like the clinical rotations, maybe times a million. Yes, yes. In medical school, I would say it's more of a observational, experiential sort of situation where your sole purpose is just to take in as much as you can. And once you kind of move over to that resident or intern role in your first year, there's a whole weight of responsibility that rests on your on your shoulders. So beyond the learning aspect, it's the dealing with the responsibility of caring for patients and uh, knowing that kind of the the decision-making that you put into practice are, is going to have a direct effect on patients. And that's, a, that's an adjustment to make from just observing as a medical student or helping where you can to really making those decisions yourself. I feel like that's an adjustment that on a, on a much smaller scale, I see a lot of our paramedic students have to make, where initially especially if you come into the class with the experience of being an EMT, being an attendant, helping carry bags, helping out, but not having to make those decisions, it's easy to glide into being a paramedic student and I'm going to start IVs and sit here in the corner and try not to make anybody mad and and then making that transition to, oh, I've, I've got to start calling some shots. I've got to start making some decisions. Absolutely. I think that is something that 
maybe uh, maybe providers don't think a whole lot about when they're making that transition from EMT to paramedic. Um, it's one thing to do the skills. It's another thing entirely to make the decision to do the skills, right? Like, I know how to RSI, but when I'm looking someone in the eye trying to decide, is this the right thing for you, that, that adds a whole other layer of critical decision-making and, uh, and just feeling the impact of that decision. I know personally, I think that was part of my drive to go to paramedic school was that I wanted to, to be the person that didn't go in the back and do one or two things and then hop in the front and drive to the hospital. I wanted to be the person that is actually able to, to call those shots and make those choices and help have those positive outcomes from those patients. I would say that that's something that I didn't really learn in paramedic school was being able to make those decisions comfortably. And that's uh, that's a change that I've seen in the years since I went through paramedic school. Now all the programs are consistently emphasizing through their preceptors and through the training that you need to graduate able to make those decisions. And then I saw that again, that transition again, moving into the field supervisor role here at Cypress Creek EMS, where all of a sudden I didn't have a safety net anymore that I had before, before I could call my supervisor. Well, now who I was the supervisor, who was I going to call? Certainly it's one thing to teach those skills, but it is quite challenging to teach people how to work through those decisions, how to talk them through looking at all of the options when every situation is so very different. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how you teach that effectively uh, when people's patterns of thinking are different, the patient situation is different. It's just very challenging to communicate that and to practice that skill. I think so. I, I, I do think about um, a, a lecture I heard at NAMSP this year on metacognition. It was all about thinking about how we think. And it was an EMS medical director who has probably the coolest job ever. He's the medical director for a large chunk of the National Park Service. And his office is like the Grand Tetons and Yellowstone. And it's I'm super jealous of his area where he can work. He emphasizes for his medics and the, the folks in his classes, because they has, have a paramedic school, that you have to think about how you think. And um, it's not just the actual process of making a decision in the moment, which looks different for every patient, every scene, every provider. But there are some commonalities behind the scenes. Things like detaching and stepping back, at least inside your head, stepping back from the situation. Are there any helpful patterns or models or, or tips or tricks or sayings that you found along the way have been beneficial for that? I would say that um, my go-to is to falling back on those very basic that we learned from EMT, assess the airway, assess the breathing, assess the circulation. When you get lost, go back to those basic things. And then once you calm yourself back down, uh, you know, from the heat of the moment, uh, you can add on to that. Okay, now I need to do my sample assessment. What's the OPQRST? Once you have kind of that foundation of assessment, you can revert to those things when things are a little off the handle. Um, and then as you gain control of your situation, you can build upon that. But without that foundation, you're flailing. So it's good to have those basics very well ingrained. 
So those basics like the airway and the breathing, that's, that's almost like the safe place we retreat to. Absolutely. Anything else you found helpful in managing kind of that stress and that, those thought processes under pressure? I think it is important to have some self-awareness about what your stress level is in the moment. Uh, because once you get out of that functional area, you can't make decisions effectively. You can't perform skills effectively. And if you can't recognize when you are approaching that threshold um, or when you're in that, that level where your physiology makes it impossible to function, then you are not doing yourself or anyone else any favors. So being able to recognize, okay, I am approaching a level where I cannot perform effectively. I need to dial it back. And knowing how to dial it back um, whatever method it is for you. For me, it's again, going back and reevaluating, okay, I know the steps that I need to take. I know that this is what we've done. This is where we've been and this is where we need to go. And for everyone, that's going to be different. However you manage that. Um, that's very important to have that insight about yourself. I agree completely. I, I find just taking a few deep breaths can be incredibly grounding. And I, I, been trying to figure out a way to describe it and then I, last year I read this book or listened to this book called Into the Magic Shop by James Doty who's a, a neurosurgeon and in the beginning of the of the book um, and, and we'll link to that in the show notes he described perfectly what I've done which is just this taking a breath and forcing myself to take a breath and step back and get out of the, the grind and then do exactly what you described and run through okay here's what I I know to be true here's what I know needs to happen well, I think that's the where the value of having a partner, a partner that you definitely trust comes in, um, in EMS, because I know personally, I've had my partner check me on that. And I've checked my partner on that where we're like, hey, I know we're doing all this, uh, this paramagic over here. But um, what about maybe a non rebreather? And you, you take that second and you're like, oh, yeah, maybe that might help him. Um and I found that to be incredibly valuable. Absolutely. I like the word paramagic. I'm glad you said that. Um, but there should be no shame in asking your EMT partner, if you're a paramedic or a first responder, hey, I'm all out of ideas. Am I missing anything? And that's something that we use in the emergency department. I'll ask the nurses, the respiratory therapists, all right, this is what we've done. And we've not made much progress. If anybody has any bright ideas, I will take them. Otherwise, we're going to work the pro the problem that's in my mind. But I'm, I'm open to subject su uh, suggestions. So you're in the U.S. military. How did that happen? Good question. I had always been interested in serving. I didn't know what that looked like. I did not come from a military family. Uh, I... Once I applied to medical school, again, it wasn't super well thought out. I realized I don't have the money to pay for this. Um, so as part of my exploring of options, I got an email and I got a flyer through the mail uh, about uh, joining the military to fund medical school. And I thought, well, this is a pretty good marriage of something that I had always hoped and thought about doing and medicine, which I am uh, 
on that path now to go to medical school. So um, I applied to the health professions scholarship program and it was accepted and was really excited about it. Um, they, the Air Force, paid for three years of medical school and in return I owe them a certain number of years that becomes more complicated with every passing year of training that I do. So it's been good to me so far. Um, I don't have a whole lot of experience with what I would refer to as the big Air Force that uh, tells me where to go and what to do and uh, how to do it. I've been in training for a lot of it, but I really don't have much to complain about. It's been good to me so far. So being in the Air Force, active duty, mm-hmm. how does that impact that tr- that training process as far as residency and, and fellowship? So residency in the military looks very much like it does in the civilian world. I would say the, at least for emergency medicine, there is definitely a focus on trauma care that of course you get in the civilian world, but we think about it in a little bit different way. We think about how can I take this into the field? How can I take this into some austere environment? which fits EMS perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also think about operational medicine. Um, what does it look like to take care of, you know, your local nationals versus your U.S. forces? We, we think a little bit more in terms of combat um, than obviously you might in the civilian world. So there's just, there are some nuances um, to the training, but on the whole, it looks a lot like it does in the civilian world. I guess medicine is medicine. It certainly is, yes. Um, The nice thing about training in a military facility is that we have access to those innovators who are trying new things, thinking up new ideas in the combat role um, downrange that eventually bleeds over into the civilian world. So much of the research that we use in EMS comes from combat. So it's it's interesting to be able to access those brains and those innovators uh, right there in our military treatment facility. It's cool. So how did you end up in this fellowship and what is this fellowship all about? So let me answer your second question first. This fellowship is, um, first, it's kind of two components. It's EMS and it is disaster medicine, which overlap but are a little bit different in their focus. The original hope for this fellowship in the military was to take some experienced Uh, military physicians who have been in the operational environment, who know how the military works, train them to um, effectively administer EMS programs and to be experts in disaster medicine, and then send them out to basically exert influence on those high-level decision makers that can change policy can move the military into new directions based on 
best evidence. It's kind of morphed a little bit since its origination and has become uh, not universally, but a little bit more geared to people who don't have a whole lot of operational experience like myself, who would like to go out and get that experience to work with medics um, to do some kind of transport medicine uh, in the military. And then after that, there's not a whole clear plan for what EMS physicians, what role we serve in the military. It's a little bit unclear at this point. Um, and it leaves a lot of opportunity for us to kind of build our, our role ourselves, which is exciting. It definitely seems from the outside looking in, like there's a lot of potential value in having the EMS physician training in the military where, uh, again, from the outside looking in, I'm, I've never been in the military. Beasley has. Uh, but from the outside looking in, it's there's a lot of medics and not a lot of doctors. And that looks at least superficially similar to EMS. And so it seems like there are some opportunities there for some cross-pollination and bringing some of the best ideas from the EMS civilian world into that realm as EMS physicians. Uh, but then also you described the, the innovations that we've been privileged with in the civilian EMS world to use the military's had. And, and maybe there's potentially some opportunities there for the military to innovate in EMS as well. And those of us who are not military do we civilian 911 EMS to uh, benefit from that. Absolutely. If you think about it, the military has probably the biggest EMS system in the nation, right? We have not only in garrison EMS, some some services will do their own EMS on on post or on base, but we also have just a huge network of patient patient movement, right? Like uh, uh, I can't even put into words how big that infrastructure is to move patients from point of injury to the role two, the, the role three. Um, it's, it's what we do. So for us to not have people who are subject matter experts in EMS, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So it seems like that's where we should be moving is putting those key people into strategic roles to, to inform our decision making. So coming into this position, um, or this this rotation, we sat down, and I've sat down with the fellows who've rotated through here in the past, and everybody has kind of their own goals and their own passions, and we look to uh, leverage some of those passions and interests and meet those goals in this rotation, and it's looked different for everyone. For you, where, where would you say that your, your passions lie right now in, in what you're doing in training and in practice? So I would say that my, pa my passions have kind of morphed over the course of uh, the fellowship. So coming out of residency, I definitely had an interest in pre-hospital airway management. It's such an area of contention. There's so much controversy. Do we, do we intubate? Do we not intubate? Do we do eye gels for everybody? What's the answer? How do we best equip our, our medics to do what they need to do with the tools that they have? Um, I find that everyone has a different opinion on that based on what evidence they like to read for that day, um, which is fine. That's that's how that's how we are as uh, medical directors. Uh, I have found that 
I am probably, I spend more of my time doing more administrative tasks than doing those things that I am excited about, like teaching airway management or researching best practices, things like that, um, that I might have done in the past. And I spend more time thinking about what what do I need to add at an administrative level to effectively exert some influence to make the system as a bigger whole more effective, if that makes sense. It's, it's awesome to be able to work with individual people and teach individual skills. Um, there also needs to be kind of a higher level effect, if that makes sense. Um, I don't think I'm expressing myself very clearly. Almost like you can, you can train one person. And if you only train one person at a time, you're not going to reach that many people. If you can figure out a way to multiply that and train 10 people or a hundred people, then you can actually start making a difference, a larger scale difference. Yes. I think you're summarizing very well. <laughs> and, uh, for me, that's a weakness that I recognize in myself. I, I do what I enjoy, which is working with people one-on-one. Uh, it's figuring out where do I fit in this whole scheme as a medical director because it looks different for every service, right? Uh, the service I came from as a medic, I didn't know who my medical director was. I never talked to that person. They might say, have signed my paperwork every two years. I'm not even sure. But uh, And then in, in certain cities, you get a doctor that shows up on scene, which is like night and day difference. So just figuring out how do I, how do I do that? What does that look like in, in whatever service that I happen to be rotating with for the, the time period? I feel like that's a, a legitimate challenge for a lot of medical directors. I look at, at some medical directors who have a service where they have maybe 50 medics that work for them and they can very definitely know all those medics and their kids' names and their wife's names and have the pulse of the system and then there's services like ours where we have uh, much closer to 180 200 something medics and it's a lot harder to know everybody and then you move up to a system like san antonio or houston or any number of larger other city systems where you have hundreds if not thousands of medics that's a whole nother challenge absolutely yes it's going to look different in every system and based on every person, um, I think just having a doc that's willing to do anything is awesome based on my past experience. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to be uh, splitting my time both on the administrative levels and in the field, which is where I would prefer to spend most of my time, honestly. But uh, I, I do what I need to do. It reminds me of a challenge that my one of my previous bosses managers had, uh, Lisa, who was a clinical manager here for a number of years, and she was trying to convince me to leave the field and come up here, and I, I was very much enjoying Medic 57. As strange as that sounds to our folks, it, it by far was my favorite station. I learned a ton there, and... I really didn't want to leave the field because I love patient care. It's killing me right now not doing patient care and not picking up ambulance shifts. 
it, there's just something about actually taking care of people and seeing the difference. But she convinced me over time that I could make a bigger difference in patients' lives and more patients' lives by moving into a role of education and administration and multiplying that impact through multiple medics. And that was challenging for me to, to work through. That's very well put. Yes, I agree. And that's a pattern I've seen with a lot of medical directors that I know is a lot of the training, years of training actually, honestly, prepare you to deal with that patient in the ER and to work your shift in your beds in the ER. But in the role that you're moving into right now and training for, you're really stepping away from that pretty heavily and moving into an administrative type role. That's a, that's a huge difference and a huge jump. It is a huge difference. And one perhaps I wasn't completely understanding of uh, when I got into this. Not that I enjoy it any less. It, it's just, uh, I think it's eye-opening when you get into it to see how much uh, paperwork and sitting at your computer and, oh, the politics. There's so many politics that go into uh, being an EMS medical director. Uh, definitely eye-opening. For sure. Well, we definitely appreciate having you here. Uh, before we wrap up this podcast, I know we're in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis. Any words of wisdom about COVID-19 for our folks? I know that that's kind of consumed a lot of your attention recently. I think it's consumed everyone's attention. It's uh, just like hanging over everyone um, night and day. And I would say take care of yourselves. Uh, just do the best that you can for the patients. I know it feels like there's different guidance all the time. It's confusing. What's the CDC saying? What's the WHO saying? What's the TV saying? You guys are doing great. I've heard the good things that you're doing. Just continue doing the best you can for your patients and taking care of yourself. Those are really the biggest things. Those are good words of wisdom. Well, we appreciated getting the chance to get to know you a little bit better here. And uh, I can speak for everybody in the field that we're looking forward to seeing you on our calls and hoping you're here longer than a month or back again for other rotations. Um, if you in the field, if you have any questions for Dr. Ely, let her know. Uh, you can call her. She has the MD2 phone. Uh, you can call her to your scene if you want. And if you have any questions for the podcast, go to creekshare.org, fill out the form, submit a question for the podcast, or you can submit it to my office phone. You can call me. Um, or send me a text. I'm reachable a lot of different ways. We'd love to answer your questions on air, and we're going to continue to try to address questions and burning topics throughout this crisis. Um, and, and as Dr. Ely said, take care of yourself. Do what's right for the patient. It'll all be all right. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us today, and be on the lookout for our next episode.